1: Lately, I've been doing many interviews for new books with urban historians, with historians of architecture, because especially as someone who grew up in the countryside and as someone who's been bouncing between cities for the last few years, namely Cairo and Istanbul, I'm in awe of cities and how they shape human interaction, and then in turn, how human interaction shapes the cities themselves. So today's interview with Unverustem was a chance to indulge my great love, not only of urban history, but also of mosque architecture. I've long lived in the Muslim world, and whenever I leave it, I'm struck by the absence of minarets and mosque domes. It's this natural part of the landscape. They are part of everyday life, and then they're part of the soundscape as well, with the call for prayer five times daily. I always miss it when I'm gone. My name is N. A. Mansour or Nadira, and today on New Books in Middle East Studies, we're talking to Invar Stem, and we're talking specifically about his book, Ottoman Baroque, The Architectural Refashioning of 18th Century Istanbul. Unvad is an assistant professor in the Department of the History of Art at Johns Hopkins University. He received his B.A. and his M.A. from the University of London, and he received his Ph.D. from Harvard University in the History of Art and Architecture. His dissertation research was supported by the Barakat Foundation and Coach University's Animate Center. And he was also a Mellon Postdoctoral Teaching Fellow and lecturer at Columbia University and the first Fadi Saeed Visiting Fellow in Islamic Art at the University of Cambridge. Okay, so to those of us who aren't architecturally inclined or inclined to art history, the word Baroque might not mean much. It kind of might be equivalent to Gothic, and we kind of vague sense of what it means, but we don't necessarily know exactly what it means and the origin of the term. This is a failure, of course, on the part of um English medium, art history, education in high school, perhaps. But I never
2: learned what Baroque meant. Um, Yeah, no, this is uh, actually I was was remiss of me not to uh, go into this and not just for those of you who aren't art historically inclined, but art historians, any art historians listening to this or anyone with an interest in art history um, might well me to task for using the term Baroque at all, because it is a contentious term. And um, Even those who do use it sort of sometimes have to defend or struggle to explain it clearly. So the term Baroque, like so much um, terminology that we use in art history and history too, is not a term that was used in the period in question by those who, who produced the art and architecture that we now call Baroque. So it's a term actually that, that originates um, from a Portuguese word meaning irregular pearl. And it's a term that gained currency in the 19th and 20th centuries, as a way of describing a kind of um, art and architecture, and I'll limit my discussion here to architecture because we get too complicated otherwise, but to a kind of architecture that flourished in the 17th and 18th centuries um, and that was characterised by its use of um, forms derived from classical art. So, you know, classical art, meaning the art of um of ancient art, I sh- art, ancient art, I should say. So the art, art of ancient Greece and Rome, which of course had experienced a revival in Europe with the Renaissance. So these forms are sort of reintroduced, and what happens is in the 17th century, even beginning the late 16th century, um, you have this classical vocabulary, this Alantica vocabulary, sort of you beginning to be used in more dramatic, less canonical ways, and this is the style that we tend to call Baroque, or that traditionally has been termed Baroque. So It's a broad label for a series of styles that, um, you know, the the styles take different forms. You know, Baroque varies across Europe and then it spreads beyond Europe, which is one of the most distinctive things about the Baroque, that it's the first style that one can say legitimately went global. It's a style that was sort of carried to the New World and to Asia uh, because of uh, the Spanish empires and, 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 you know, the, the style really spread and it was associated especially with Ecclesi- ecclesiastical architecture, but it's a star that's characterized by its use of um you know classical architectural elements that we are familiar with from you know brand public buildings, but they are used in a slightly um, more adventurous, more playful, sometimes more showy way than they are in, in strictly neoclassical architecture. So um, this is a star that flourished, as I said, in the 17th, 18th centuries, and that's characterized by its global reach. Now the term There's been a lot of debates in art history about the validity of this term, particularly, as I said, because it wasn't used by those who produced this material itself. So this isn't just in the Ottoman context, of course the Ottomans never called it Baroque, but the term wasn't used uh, in the West either by those who who produced this art and architecture that we call Baroque. Um, But you know, as with all these terms, uh, if we use it advisedly, if we admit that it's something we're applying sort of with hindsight, um, it, it does provide a useful broad label and that term is important that um qualification is important it's a broad label for a continuum of styles. so there are different kinds of baroques, right but for a continuum of styles that bear a kind of family resemblance to one another and um you know attempts at sort of finding other terms to substitute for baroque have really failed um in a sense and and um You know, art historians have returned again and again to using the term Baroque, even as we realize that it's a a rather problematic term. So um, in a way, I like that troubled history of the term, because, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do, as I mentioned, was sort of reclaim the term Ottoman Baroque. So given that the term Baroque itself, you know, whether Ottoman or not, has gone through this kind of um, methodological hand-wringing with scholars, you know, debating whether it's a useful term or not, but ultimately returning to, to using it. That to me offered um, a fruitful model, to kind of um, reclaiming the term Ottoman Baroque. And I should say that one of the things that sort of given the term Baroque a new lease on life is this attentiveness to its global manifestations. And so the Ottoman Baroque sort of ties in very nicely with that. So you know the, the globality of the Ottoman of the Baroque, sorry, has long been noted, but in the past it's tended to be discussed in terms of kind of um, it, 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 with, with the European Baroque being understood as normative and, and non European Baroques as being sort of understood as deviations. Whereas more recent scholarship has tended to emphasize the fact that these sort of regional Baroques had their own pace, their own rhythm, their own motivations, and um, were in dialogue with the European Baroque, but not necessarily beholden to it. And so, um, you know, my Ottoman Baroque is sort of part of this, this, um, this newer approach to, to global Baroques more generally. There's also recognition of the fact that the Baroque is a really flexible kind of language. It varies from place to place, even within Europe. You know, French Baroque is not the same as Italian Baroque. It's not the same as, as uh, you know, Baroque in, in, in Russia, for example. And of course, you know, Russia is is Russian Baroque, even a kind of European Baroque, or is it also a non-European Baroque? You know, all kinds of questions are raised when we consider examples like the Russian example, and the same questions are raised by the Ottoman Baroque, because let's not forget the Ottomans are in Europe. The Ottomans are a European power as much as they are a Middle Eastern power. Um, Istanbul is technically on European soil, so even bringing in the Ottoman, uh, focusing on the Ottoman Baroque, um, sort of redraws some of the civilizational contours we associate with the Baroque as kind of this European phenomenon. Well, um, it, it might be a phenomenon that originated in Europe, but what does Europe exactly mean when the Baroque is then taken up in other parts of the world and? including the Ottoman Empire, which is itself a European power. So anyway, so it's a very long winded question to your uh, answer to your question. Um, but I hope that sort-, sort of gives your listeners a sense of what I mean when I use the term Baroque.
1: So Unvar has just broken down for us what Baroque means. So the question now is: Does pairing it with the word Ottoman represent a contradiction? Can something be Ottoman and Baroque? Can it be Ottoman Baroque? Is it a value judgment?
2: So the term is not one I coined. Um, it goes back to the early 20th century uh, when it was generally um, spoken of as Turkish Baroque, right? So sort of the Turkish has been replaced with Ottoman, and that's a whole story of its own, which I won't get into unless you want me to. But Um, And that doesn't just happen in terms of the Ottoman Baroque. That's a more general shift in the literature. But anyway, the the notion of a Turkish Baroque is one that goes back to the early 20th century. And um, it was a term coined by art historians and connoisseurs sort of looking for a way to describe this material, which when you look at it, it looks very different from what came before. So from about 1740 onwards, um, the Ottomans... um, or at least in Istanbul, and I I have to sort of say that the story I'm telling is one that really centers on Istanbul. There is Ottoman Barak outside Istanbul as well. I can talk about that a a little later if you want. But um, for the most part, the the book and what I'm saying in this discussion centers on Istanbul. From about 1740 onwards, um, buildings built in Istanbul start looking very different from what came before. And um, there are a number of distinctive features that distinguish them. So uh, for example, where traditional Ottoman arches were pointed, these new arches are generally round or made up of sort of complicated silhouettes that incorporate a round and, and um, straight elements. So it's mixed linear arches. That's one way in which it differs. Uh, traditional motifs such as the Muqarnas, which is the term we use to describe that kind of very distinctly or characteristically Islamic sort of stalactite Design, sometimes it's compared to a honeycomb. Um, that Mukanas motif stops being used and is now replaced by these very kind of fancy uh vegetal. So, you know, meaning kind of um vegetal is a technical term we use to describe um stuff that sort of looks like vegetation, right? So it's sort of the campus leaves and, and that sort of uh, motif. So you, you find um car right? uh, you have scrolls and shapes, leaves and sizes. So um, you have a brand new equity book, seeing So you, uh, geometric, um, geometric intellect gives these swelling walls. And these walls have very relationship with, in the museum to rockers. So some of the uh, in the 1780s of well, we the architects and artisans of, of the 18th century. There's quite a lot for the 19th century. And, you know, the buildings you mentioned in, in Bayor you know, that it comes from a later period when um, uh, these Figures are better recorded. Their biographies are better known. Often they sign the buildings. Um, and these these buildings that you're talking about are, are generally post the Tanzimat, which is this sort of series of reforms in the mid-19th century that um, liberalised things, that, that uh, gave great, greater rights to uh, Ottoman non-Muslims. Um, the 18th century was a little bit different, which is that there, there, it was very much possible for non-Muslims to participate in the architectural sphere. And in fact, if you look even at uh, records from the 16th century, so the um, the, the wage registers and, and those kinds of documents for the Soleimanias construction, you'll find that um, non-Muslim uh, craftsmen were a, a very big part of the story even then. But um, what you find in the 18th century is that semi-autonomous teams of uh, mainly Greek architects and artists were able to kind of assert themselves and uh, be granted the majority of commissions, or at least be put in a, a position of responsibility over uh, teams of craftsmen that were tied somehow to the court. So the, co- the official um, core, C-O-R-P-S, of imperial architects continued to exist in this period, but most of the architects we know of, the sort of named architects who worked on these buildings, do not seem to have belonged to that core. So the architect of the Nur Osmanier Mosque was a figure called Simeon Khalfa. Um, and I'll get into what Khalfa means in a second, but he was um, a Greek. And he does not appear to have been a member of, formally speaking, a member of the uh, official imperial architect's call. He seems to have been, if you like, a sort of freelance architect who was nevertheless um, uh, contracted by the court to work on this building. And this goes for other Greek architects of the period as well. So these are um, teams of architects who were not just working for the court, they they could work for um, other patrons as well, but who had managed to distinguish themselves as being particularly adept at producing this style. This was a style that um, relied on fluency with um, a variety of architectural sources and models. And the Ottoman non-Muslim community was especially well-placed to access such sources because Ottoman Greeks and Armenians had networks that extended um, into Western Europe. I mean, you could find Ottomans of all stripes um, in in Western Europe, as, as merchants and, and for other businesses as well, so it's not that there weren't there, there weren't any Muslim Ottoman merchants in in the West. There were, but um, the presence of Ottomans in the West was particularly, or well, there was a particularly vibrant presence of Ottomans um, among Ottoman non-Muslim communities of like Greeks and Armenians. So these were these architects and craftsmen were embedded in communities that themselves had networks that um, gave them. Uh, ready access to um, books from Europe, you know, objects from Europe. And I even speculate in in the book, and again, this is something that is a speculation because we we really have very little biographical information about these figures. But I speculate that some of these figures may even have been able to use these networks to travel west for themselves. So uh, a figure like Simeon Kalfa may himself have actually seen some uh, Western Baroque architecture in situ, and that may have informed his practice upon his return to Istanbul. So these are figures who are, you know, they are Ottoman, they are from Istanbul, they are uh, sort of full participants in Ottoman society, but um, they had greater access than was typical for uh, a Muslim Ottoman to these networks that that allowed them um, access to information and models um, uh, from the West, yeah. So um, I mentioned the title kalfa, which is actually um, it's a Turkish corruption um, of the same word that gives us uh, the English caliph. So uh, the Arabic khalifa, and um, it's a term that in architect uh, in architecture refers to originally referred to a kind of assistant to the architect proper. The architect proper being a mimar. um but In the 18th century when uh, it's often used of of, um, architects who were Christian and couldn't be called as a result. So Simeon was an architect really but um, there was a kind of uh, prejudicial nomenclature which meant that uh, as a non-Muslim he couldn't be termed as such. So uh, such figures were titled kalfa instead. So I translate this in the book, I'm not the only one to use this translation, as master builder. So it's it's kind of a synonym for architect, for Mimar used of of non-muslims. Um, and that really held until even the late nineteenth century, which is it was um, members of the Balyan family who started being termed officially mimar. and um, and that didn't happen until the nineteenth century, as I said. So, um yeah, I mean, that sort of speaks to what I was saying, which is these are you know these are figures who are participating in this um, architectural world. In fact, they're taking leading roles in it, but still um, on the official level, at least they are being subordinated. And there is always a, a chief Muslim architect who is nominally headed of the operation. So even if that figure is contributing nothing to um, the particular design of a building, he is nominally, nominally still head. And I should clarify that there are chief architects like Mehmet Tahir, for example, we do seem to have played a large design role, and all the chief architects would have played some role in at least approving the designs, making sure that the kalfas were sort of sticking to certain codes and regulations. But um, yeah, when you see the word kalfa used in this period, it might have the original meaning of sort of an assistant to the to another architect, but um, often it's it's simply a kind of um, uh, synonym for architect proper. So. Uh, that term kulfa comes up quite a bit in my book, and that's what it's referring to.
1: So I like method and technique. I like knowing how people function. I like knowing what their routines are like. And this part of the conversation is going to be more or less, it's going to begin with how Inver uses his sources, its own methods, but then it's going to go somewhere else entirely. So I work in intellectual history, and I don't necessarily my process is very different from yours. And you just mentioned sort of being able to walk around and see these buildings. And I'm assuming you had to go repeatedly to Nur Osmania or to Hagia Sophia and, and just even the buildings that aren't necessarily the characters in your book, you had to go to these buildings in order to try to draw these connections. So I was wondering if you could tell us about your process and also your sources, because it's something you're very clear about is that one, yes, you have the documentary sources, but the, your sources are also the buildings themselves.
2: You know, I'm not unique in, in having to work this way. This is something that most of us in Islamic art history need to do. In fact, most of us in art history in general need to do. And that's because um, sources, even when they do exist, don't, you know, written sources, I mean, don't necessarily tell us the whole story. And in, um, in Islamic art history, we have an abundance of, of sources that, or no, I should say Ottoman art history, we have an abundance of sources, at least for my period, that deal with things like, um, you know, how much was spent on, stone or where that stone came from for a particular project or you know the the kind of uh, wage registers that sort of thing but um we don't have any sources that tell us in explicit terms why this shift in architectural style came about I, i mentioned earlier it happened sort of circa 1740 and i should mention also or make clear also that this is a fairly rapid and um comprehensive shift in other words within a decade or so, one has a very um, clear cut move away from this older style, which was sort of rooted in, in, in uh, traditional Ottoman models, or earlier Ottoman models of vocabulary going back to the 15th and 16th centuries, you had a shift away from that to this new kind of style that what, what I discuss, as Ottoman Baroque. So you're seeing something that seems to demand explanation, right? And so um, a historian's impulse is to look for a written source that will speak to this shift. And you won't find one, well, or at least I didn't find one. Well. You know, I spent ages in the archives looking in vain for some kind of um, commentary that would tell us um, why this shift happened, or even comment on it in a sustained way. Because what you find is the Ottoman source of this, sources of this period do talk about this architecture as being in a new style, but they don't really talk at any length about what makes it new. They don't really talk about why, how it's new or why it's new. So, um, you know, there's, and that, says, that doesn't mean these sources don't have value. They do, and I can talk about how I sort of navigate them if, if you want me to. But what that means is that one ultimately has to look at the buildings themselves as sources um, to tell us something about the motivations uh, that, went, that, that sort of um, underpin them. And so the way to do this is to, to go repeatedly to these buildings, to look really, really closely and to look at them kind of, if you like, intertextually. So it's it's through these repeated visits, for example, that I noticed this detail that I just mentioned on, on the, the windows of the Qibla wall of the, of the Nur Osmaniye. And this might seem like a very insignificant detail. right? I'm not suggesting that everyone who went to the mosque, or even most people, or even many people who went to the mosque would ever have noticed this detail. But it's details like this that give us some sense of what was in the minds of the designers of the building, right? The people who um, really sort of uh, put their heart and soul into, into conceiving these details and, and uh, coming up with them. Once you realise that this detail can only have come from the Hagia Sophia, that tells you something that you don't have to explore further. So it's by repeatedly visiting these buildings and looking at them, at them in comparison with each other they start telling you things about themselves that you are you are then sort of forced to go off and think about and you might not find a written source that correlates what the building itself is telling you but that doesn't mean one should ignore what the building is telling you so um, you know i am very clear about the fact that there might not be a written source to um sorry i said correlate i mean corroborate written source to corroborate what the building appears to be telling us but if I didn't treat the buildings themselves as documents, then then I would have a much, um, I would have much less to say. And I think it's important for us not to privilege the written word over, um, if you like, the object itself. Because, you know, written sources are, are conventional; they are bound uh, by by and to all kinds of conventions that limit what a writer can and can't say. Um. And so there are certain things. So for example, whenever a Westerner speaks of Ottoman architecture, they're almost always obliged to, even if they really like the buildings, which they often do, they're almost always obliged to say something, or feel obliged anyway, to say something which makes clear that as much as they like this material, they don't consider it as great as what they have back home. I'm speaking about Westerners in the 18th century, for example. And so this is just a convention, you know, they they almost all they just have to say this because it's expected of them. So you know, written sources are, um, are, are not these kinds of, you know, unmediated, uh, sort of pure uh, verbalizations of what's actually going on. So, um, you know, I think that, that there is sometimes this sort of fetishization of the written source. It's excitement when you find a written source about a building. You're like, "Ah, oh, great, I have all the answers. Well, that's not the case at all, actually. A written source can tell us a great deal, but um, often it, what it doesn't tell us is can, can be just as interesting and meaningful Regarding the Nur Osmania, for example, um, a, a, a manuscript was written describing the circumstances of the mosque construction. This is a very rare kind of uh, document, and it's it, I did not discover it. This is a, a well-known source; it's been used by scholars for a century or so now, and it's, it was written by Ahmed Efendi, who was um, a kind of financial clerk responsible for uh, sort of the bookkeeping surrounding the mosque. And it's a very long description. It describes a project from start to finish. And um, and yet there are so many details it doesn't talk about, so many, not even details, sort of just big questions that I as an art historian have that the source doesn't cover. Now, I can either say, oh, well, that's because these questions are unimportant to an Ottoman uh, observer of the time and shouldn't be asked by me, or I can actually look at Ahmed Efendi's source um, as something that's um you know, written according to certain sort of generic conventions, that that won't address those questions. Even if even if a himself had those questions in mind. So um, yeah, I, I think it's really important that we that we not limit ourselves to looking at written sources and to treat the buildings themselves as um, entities that actually can reveal a great deal about. The, the motivations, uh, the, the um, ideas, the kinds of thought processes, the unwritten discourses that went into their construction and their conception.
1: No, that is actually something I really enjoyed about the book is that I could read it and then I can af- afterwards I could go because I'm lucky enough to live in Istanbul. I was I could go and I could visit these places and I can go. aha, uh-huh, Okay, that's sort of what's going on here, or um, or I could imagine the city. Because certain things have stayed the same. I could imagine sort of what was happening in that part of the city during the 18th century. So, for example, the Nouros well, the roads have stayed the same. The The, the Grand Bazaar has, has always been there. The, the, the constellation of mosques around it have stayed the same. I could sort of think about it in relation to these other buildings. So that's what – so I think the book very much, in addition to also being wonderfully illustrated – you can see all of these things. It's, it's sort of immediate. And I think that's something that I appreciated about this versus reading something else, what I do in intellectual history, where I can't see that as clearly. Um, so... Yeah, and that's the other
2: important thing about, sorry to interrupt, about sort of these sources I'm dealing with that, uh, you know, as, architecture as a source, which is that this is a source that's in a sense open to everyone, right? I mean, this is not to say, as I said, that everyone looking at these buildings is going to sit there, studying these details and understand the references, etc., etc. you know, uh, for the majority of, of your, for your average worship, historical worshipper and modern worshipper, these details are probably lost in their individuality, but still the totality of the building has, has a way of impressing you. You know, anyone who would have visited the Nord Osmania in the 18th century, no matter how little they knew about European models, would have recognised this as a different sort of building from what they were familiar with in the city. That in itself is enough to make, make the point. Right, that this is a new kind of architecture. You don't need to understand if you're um, a, sort of a, an average person how it's new, but you would understand it as new. So unlike written sources, which are obviously um, sort of circulating in rather limited circles, you know, the, the wonderful thing about art is that um, it's, it's there, it's public, it's something that everyone at different levels can access at different levels. I mean, you know, the more you know, the more you understand. But, um, you know, these are buildings that were sort of designed to speak to multiple audiences and, and and I argue did, you know, all the way from the most educated individuals who, who could pick up on these very, very small details and understand uh, what they may have meant to, uh, you know, your average person for whom this would have just looked brand spanking you and really different from what they were familiar with.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Absolutely. And the fact that these buildings are still in use is phenomenal. Like these are things that people are still using and the architecture still has an effect on people. And it probably affects... Whether or not certain mosques are, I mean, of course, certain things favor whether or not a mosque is in heavy use, but it does have an effect on people. People speak about that, whether or not a certain mosque has an effect on the way they worship or the way they move within that space Um, or even the way multiple groups of people move. Like you see children playing in the Suleymaniyah because it's so vast and so big and in Kilichali Pasha because it does have that central vault. Um, But you don't see that happening in... I'm trying to think of a smaller mosque that has a a more angular shape, perhaps, um, or less light. So, I mean, I think that's also something that I enjoyed about the book is that it it referred to something. I mean, these patterns that were set by the past are still having an effect today. And as you mentioned earlier, the, the mosques are something that remain. You don't have many buildings that date from the 17th century or the 18th century that aren't part of mosque complexes today in modern-day Istanbul. And, I mean, every now and then I try to think about buildings that predate the 18th century, and I'm just like, wait, how is the only building in that area just a giant workshop that is still being used by people because, for whatever reason, it hasn't been destroyed? But that's the only building in that area that predates this century. It's, It's always... I mean, the city sees so many different waves of development, especially right now, Um, which I suppose, I mean, that's my next question of sorts is, Istanbul, you said that the the book focuses on Istanbul, Um, and many people would argue that a problem in Ottoman history is that it focuses on Istanbul. It's the history of Istanbul, especially late Ottoman history. I don't know if you care. I mean, I don't think your book is quite late Ottoman history, but. um,
2: I would call it late Ottoman history. Yeah, 18th century is late enough, I think.
1: Okay, so I guess I'll ask head on. I mean, why Istanbul in particular? What is the significance of Istanbul? And um, is what's being felt here in Istanbul being echoed across different parts of the Ottoman Empire?
2: Why Istanbul? This is a great question. Well, you know, in terms of art history, um, Istanbul sort of gained a new lease on life in the 18th century. So the court had been absent from the capital for um, a good part of the second half of the 17th century um, where you know during which the, the sultans preferred to reside in Edirne which was more tranquil and sort of removed from the politics um, of the capital proper and um, in 1703 Ahmed III was sort of compelled to move the court back he came to the throne in, in a revolution and one of the demands of, of those who revolted was that the court be moved back to Istanbul there was this concern that the city had, that the capital had been Neglected. So, the 18th century and into the 19th century was all about kind of reviving Istanbul and uh, showcasing it as the capital. And you know, after this this time away, um, it, it's no wonder that much of the patronage was designed to kind of um, signify that, that the city was sort of once again flourishing, and that the way to do this was by exploring new typologies, new styles. So, you know, the Ottoman Baroque is part of, of a more general kind of um, campaign to revivify the Ottoman capital. Um, and it's a campaign that doesn't just incorporate architecture, it's in, its, in terms of public festivals as well. But it's, it's, a, it's a message that's designed, I think, or it's, it's, it's been um, uh, aimed not only at local audiences, but also as an an international audience. And, you know, Istanbul has always been an international city. It's always had a very large uh, contingent of foreign residents. So the Ottomans were well aware that they were playing um, not only to local audiences, but to audiences uh, beyond the empire, sort of residents and visitors, diplomats, tourists, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, in a sense, yes, you know, focusing on Istanbul, when you're dealing with such a vast empire, um, you know, it, it kind of perpetuates an old problem of focusing on the center at the expense of the so-called peripheries or provinces or whatever. Of course, that whole terminology has, has been rightly problematized. But, you know, on the other hand, um, it's important or it, it, it's impossible to deny the fact that at least in terms of art and architecture, Istanbul is kind of the, the showcase city. It's the, it's the place where the Ottoman sultans are, pouring, and other patrons, are pouring their resources in terms of beautifying and revivifying the city. And um, so it's no accident that, you know, the the most significant constructions of of the 18th and 19th centuries um, are are taking place in Istanbul. It's where the grandest mosques and palaces are being built. So, um, you know, this is not in any way to say that... um, one shouldn't be looking at what's going on in other places. One should And, you know, that's one of the limitations of my book, which I'm very open about the fact that, you know, my story is one, you know, I very much focus on Istanbul. Someone else doing this book may have, um, done a very productive job of, of comparing the monuments in Istanbul to what's going on outside the city. Like I, I, there are moments in the book where I do that. I mention um, examples, um, elsewhere in modern day Turkey. And also I bring in Cairo briefly, but, um, you know, for the most part, I, I am focused on Istanbul at the expense of other places. My justification is partly that, you know, this material hasn't been sufficiently looked at in, in the revisionist English language literature anyway. So, you know, it, it's not as if I'm I'm uh, flogging, uh, um, what's the expression, beating a dead horse? You know, this is something that actually hasn't been, um, in more recent literature at least, explored. So there's there was still space for me to work on this material. But yeah, I mean, the the... the this stuff is happening outside Istanbul too. Um, It happens, at least in the chronology that I've come up with in Istanbul first. So you kind of have um, the Ottoman Baroque being taken up in different parts of the empire after it sort of debuted as it were in Istanbul. Um, And it's always localized. So in the same way that the Ottoman Baroque is itself a localization of the Baroque, the Ottoman Baroque then sort of splinters off into these various uh, localized forms throughout the empire. Um, I shouldn't necessarily say throughout the empire because I haven't obviously looked at all the parts of the former Ottoman Empire. But you know, you, you find it happening, um, you know, in parts of the Balkans, in in Egypt, um, throughout modern day Turkey. So um, you know, and and these models are, or these um, local manifestations of it are referring to models in Istanbul. So Istanbul clearly holds this sort of um, position of primacy as kind of the showcase. Of, of where all this is happening and it, it's 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 not just an artistic enterprise there is a a political edge to it too you know i am not the first to note that this style comes about in about 1740 and i'm not the first to read the ottoman baroque in political terms but um what's tended to happen in the past is that the way it's been read politically is is in the context of the decline paradigm right so if if some if we assume, as has been assumed in the past, that the Ottoman Empire is kind of this uh, inter- in, uh, interminable decline um, beginning from the 17th century, well, beginning even in the late 16th century, according to some chronologies, but really sort of in the 18th and 19th century, sort of at a point of, of no return. Then if you see the introduction of this sort of, quote-unquote, foreign-looking style, um, it's inevitable that you're going to read that as a reflection of decline, right? That it's the Ottomans losing self-confidence and taking up a foreign style in a sort of desperate bid to um, find their feet again and kind of imitate a now superior West. And in fact, there's a wonderful quotation by Bernard Lewis, which I uh, use in my introduction. I, I can't quote it now, I can paraphrase it, but it's something to the effect that when you see a foreign inf- foreign influence appearing in a building such as a, an imperial mosque, and he's referring here to the Nur Osmaniyeh, then there must be some faltering of self-confidence on the part of the culture, right? That somehow the culture has lost its way and is now resorting to these foreign models. The problem with that interpretation, as I mentioned earlier, is that it sort of assumes that um, it assumes that buildings are kind of these spontaneous uh, expressions of psychological anxiety rather than looking at the fact that a building is planned, financed, you know, built over many, many years and, and therefore a very deliberate sort of um, enterprise. So what, what my interpretation is, or how I um, moved away from this older political interpretation was to look in more granular terms at the actual chronology. So rather than just assuming that it's all decline what was going on around the year that the Ottoman Baroque burst onto the scene? Because that was really significant to me, that this style burst onto the scene, not out of nowhere as such, that you can, you can see sort of inklings of, of Ottoman Baroque happening in the previous decades, but as a, as a totality, as an overall style, one can say say that the Ottoman Baroque kind of burst onto the scene without much warning in a way that seems so... Um, complete and rapid that it must have been programmatic. This is one of the key arguments of my book, that it comes about, it's introduced into the fabric of the city um, in public buildings that are uh, 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 um, uh, with, with elite patrons. And so to me, this is a style that has some kind of official backing that is being promoted by really important individuals at, at the higher levels of the Ottoman administration and that, has, uh, that is in some way programmatic. So what is happening in this moment around 1740 that would explain the rise of a new style like this? And what you see, actually, when you, when you look is that um, in 1739, the Ottomans had just concluded um, a successful war against the Habsburgs. And this was, and I mentioned this earlier in relation to the I, this was the, the reconquest of Serbia, including the capital Belgrade, which had been lost to the Habsburgs around 20 years earlier uh, under Ahmed III. So now Mahmud I has just reconquered this territory and concluded a, a rather favorable peace treaty with the Habsburgs. This was a war, by the way, um, that the, the Russians also joined on the Habsburg side. So the Ottomans were fighting two imperial foes and yet managed to come out on top. So they, fight, they signed the, uh, the peace treaty of Belgrade with the Habsburgs and then the, a parallel peace treaty with the Russians. And that treaty kind of, um, it wasn't quite as favorable to the Ottomans, but it nevertheless brought the conflict to an end in in terms that ultimately favored the Ottomans and was viewed as an Ottoman victory. And this peace treaty um, inaugurated a 30-year peace with with the Ottomans' Christian neighbors, which was the longest peace the Ottomans ever had with their Christian neighbors. Now, of course, when they signed it, they weren't to know that there would be 30 years of peace to follow. But my point is that 1739 marks a a positive moment in Ottoman history, you know, uh, sort of contrary to this notion of of, uh, unremitting decline. This is a moment when the Ottomans actually emerged quite successfully from this war and won back this territory from the Habsburgs. And so to me, it seemed not coincidental that you had on the back of this victory the emergence of this style, a style which, moreover, is in many ways and borrow it, not borrowing, but in many ways co opting mm. motifs and forms associated with the very enemy that the Ottomans had just defeated and it's worth noting that the the city of Belgrade, during its you know couple of decades under Habsburg rule, had acquired a number of Baroque monuments in that time. So you know the Ottomans had just reconquered Belgrade, which now comes complete to them with baroque monuments is it not a powerful statement on the Ottomans' part to then introduce a kind of Baroque architecture of their own that, um, you know, appropriates a style that is associated with with the enemy they've just defeated? So rather than view the style as as being a defeatist mode, as being a style born of uh, decline and decadence, if you look at the actual specific circumstances in which the style was, was, was born you'll see that the the mood was a positive one. It was on the back of a triumph. So that to me already means that we have to look at the motivations of the style very differently. And that's why I read the Ottoman Baroque as being a style that was a a self-confidence style, a style by which the Ottomans are trying to signal that they are relevant players on the European stage. You know, the Ottomans see themselves as a European power, were viewed as a European power, and the Ottoman Baroque, in my view, is, is, is a way to symbolize this, to signify this in visual terms that, you know, you know we are... Um, uh, sorry, we here being the Ottoman state, I'm sort of speaking in half the Ottoman state. You know, we are part of this broader political and civilizational landscape. We are relevant players on this landscape. And we are able to um, update our capital in terms that speak to these broader trends that are happening in international art and, architect- art and architecture. And I should mention here that, you know, that the, the, the um, conventional traditional view of the Baroque is that it's a style that's sort of on its way out in Western Europe, circa 1750. So that this leaves the Ottomans on the back foot. In other words, they're kind of adopting a style even as it's on its way out in Western Europe. But this chronology, I, I, I really sort of destabilize in my book and I showed that the Baroque remained a really vibrant style um, especially in Central and Southern Europe, well into the late 18th century. And of course, Central and Southern Europe are the parts of Europe that are, are, are closest to the uh, to, to the Ottoman possessions in Europe. So, you know, the Ottomans are um, participating in, in what was at the time a modern and current style. So that participation in, 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 in aesthetic terms, I think, mirrored a certain uh, political moment in Ottoman history where, on the back of this victory against the Habsburg, the Ottomans are, are, are sort of feeling once again confident that also they, they're trying to reframe their relationship with Western Europe. So this victory, as I said, was marked by a peace treaty that then began a 30-year period of peace because the Ottomans, while emerging successful from this war, realise that their relationship with their Christian neighbours has changed. They are no longer looking to conquer um, you know, Christendom. They are quite happy to claim their, uh, their place among this kind of constellation of, of European powers and to, to um, assert themselves as a relevant and important player in a kind of an equal balance of powers in Europe. And I, I so the Ottoman Baroque is sort of signaling uh, it's both a triumphal mode, but it's also signaling this sort of um, reframing of the relationship the Ottomans have with Western Europe, where they're sort of uh, positioning themselves as a player within this larger European political framework. So that to me, um, yeah, my reading of the Ottoman Baroque is is a very politicized one. And I think that's justified by the chronology um, in which the style appears and the suddenness and the rapidity with which it spreads and the level at which it's spreading.
1: So rather mercilessly, I'm going to plunge you into a conversation of a mosque nerd and a mosque architecture expert. The Chamlajil mosque was opened in 2019 and it dominates the Istanbul skyline, redefining it in many ways. So I hate it, as you're about to hear. Nevada and I might get a little involved in our conversation and this part of the conversation might not be as accessible in terms of the content since we're just talking about the city of Istanbul and what we like about the mosques there and what we don't like. But I hope the essence of it is accessible to you. Oh, well, it's it's that mosque too. And then the the one that I think is really stunning um, is the um, Marmara University theology faculty. Um, I don't know if it's the, like it's, you can see it. It's in part of the skyline now in Altonizade. And it's totally not like anything you would expect.
2: All right. Let me, oh yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, so between the, okay. So a, a spoiler, I can sort of give, tell you my thoughts now, I suppose. Um, Okay, all right. The problem I have with a mosque like the Chamluja mosque is that it's it's a rehash. It's not creative. It's um it's you know, using a style that is now centuries old and no longer especially relevant to our own period. Moreover, it's using it in a way that they never would have in the time in question, which is to say that, you know, it's breaking all the rules. It has six minarets, it has this dome with four semi-domes around it, which is of course emulating the, the uh, design of the Sultan Ahmed Mosque. But such a mosque is really appropriate only for a sultan. You know, the, uh, only sultans could have mosques with courtyards and with multiple semi-domes. Well, that, that's not quite true. Um, non-sultans also had mosques with multiple semi-domes, but normally this feature is associated with sultanic mosques. And then having more than one minaret was definitely a feature that um, was a royal prerogative and so you know here is a mosque that is ironically trying to be a throwback to the ottoman period but but breaking rules because of course it's not being built by a sultan unless one considers erdogan a kind of sultan right um and it's yeah it's just not especially creative or um interesting in my opinion because you you it's it's simply redoing something that's already been done very very well there on the hippodrome in the form of the sultan ahmed mosque um and it's it's sort of disrespectful to the landscape, I feel, because, you know, these very, very large mosques are appropriate in the historical walled city, you know, in that sprawling urban mess. Whereas the Mosque sort of dominates the landscape so entirely, mm. um, you know, a landscape that offered a nice contrast, I feel, a welcome contrast to the hustle and bustle of the, the main city. Um, so that's my feelings on that particular building. I don't know what you think.
1: I haven't been to it yet. Um I've been avoiding like people have been inviting me to go and I've just been like, I don't want to go. It just seems I don't particularly like the Harama Sharif in Mecca. It's very sort of chaotic. Um and I find that it from the videos I've seen, it seems like it's going to be quite similar. What I don't like about it is where it is, which it's not at the head, it's not at on at the, it's not at the top of the hill. It's kind of in a little valley it seems. Um, and for me, that seems like, it seems like they just took a mosque and they put it in this little valley and disrupted the sense of flow. Because what I like about, for example, Fatih Jami or Sultan Ahmed is that it's, it sort of crowns a hill. And that's my imagination. That's Suleimaniya too. It's, that's sort of how I see the city is these hills and then mosques. And that's, so it disturbs me for that reason. Um, it is on a hill though. It's it is on a, it looks like it's part of like a little valley like someone put like a little maybe it's just my sense of the space.
2: <laughs> I mean it's it's it really dominates the uh, the view. I mean uh Google a picture and see what you think. But it's it's interesting you say that you know your sense of the city is of a series of hills dominated by mosques because I think that's very much true of the kind of historical city right the walled city Istanbul proper because historically of course that was Istanbul. Um, the walled city, the, that particular peninsula. It's not the the other parts of what we consider Istanbul are, are the suburbs of the city, technically speaking. And one doesn't think of those as being, you know, characterized by a series of hills dotted with mosques. So again, it's kind of disrupting something that I think um, it's it's actually disrupting the Ottoman topography of the city. The Ottoman topography, topography of the city. Maintain different identities for these different areas, right? So, Istanbul proper, the walled city, um, had its famous skyline. It's, it still has its famous skyline with these landmarks dotting it, and the other parts of the city were in a way subordinated to it. They were the frame that helped make um, this walled core meaningful. And so, when you stick this, you know, massive pile of a mosque. Um, on a hill in a different part of the city, and it dominates that hill so much, it it kind of just it disrupts the overall balance of the city. Um, that's my feeling, anyway.
1: I think it also it's also quite close to another landmark, which is the first bridge across Bosphorus. Um, and I that bridge, I was looking at some old pictures of it the other day, and in its own sense, not in its current shape, but because of where it is, it's sort of iconic. Um, but I also think that. Um, just in another direction, sort of aesthetically. Um, I think the nice thing about sort of the classic skyline of Fatih is that it alternates between these very... The, I mean, each mosque sort of has its own distinct structure. Like you have the Ayah Sophia, which is very distinct. Sultan Ahmad differs tremendously from the Süleymaniye, And then sort of rounding it out, this is sort of if you were to take a huge panorama... Yavuz Sultan Selim Jami is completely different in its structure, just because of the dome. Um, and it's not as imposing as Fatih Jami, but it still has its own presence because it's so different. Um, and I like that sort of alternating of spaces. And you also get that on the coast um, of Beyoğlu, where, well, you can't see Kilachali Pasha from the sea right now, and you can't see Nusretia from the sea, and you can't see Findaklu from the sea. But the old pictures, you can kind of see I mean, the way it used to be before all that construction took up. Um, and they're all very distinct. Um, you have sort of the verticality of Nusriti. You have the way Jami is sort of nestled into all these other buildings. Kilochele Pasha is its own sort of beast. Um, it, and then Fundukla is like a little less imposing. It has these beautiful, the forest, um domes in the front of the um, the walkway which you don't see from the sea itself, but it, I don't know, it's a little bit more humble. And I like that sort of, and then of course you have Doma Bahce, and that's just this nice alternation of spaces. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, that's what I like about the Marmara um, uh, the University uh, theology faculty school is that that Jami is very, um, it's very, it's very different. And it, it, it blends into the rest of the landscape when you see it from Fatih. It just it blends in.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm looking at pictures of it now. It's a much more distinctive uh, mosque. It picks up on certain things uh, from earlier Ottoman build, you know, from Ottoman buildings, so it, it doesn't completely clash with the traditional style. The, the sort of shape of the dome, the shape of the minarets, um, that kind of resonates with uh, Ottoman models, but it's obviously updating it and doing it in completely different terms. And it's it's a much more interesting, exciting sort of building. Um, to get back to what you were saying about sort of that each mosque being distinctive, that's another problem I have with the Chamnija mosque, which is that it it recreates the, the look and plan of the Sultan Ahmed mosque. And so not only is it not distinctive, because it's an imitation of an earlier mosque, I don't just mean the style is imitative, but the actual shape, right? Um, not only is it itself not distinctive, but it, it takes away from the distinctiveness of the Sultan Ahmed mosque, which, you know, is one of the most distinctive mosques in the world. You know, there's that famous story about the six minarets being a problem because the only other mosque in the world that had six minarets was the the, 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 the great mosque in Mecca, which is actually not true. This is a nice apocryphal myth, but anyway, it's it, it's, it's a good story. And then they had to add an extra minaret to the one in Mecca, apparently, because you know, and um, Sultan Ahmed had equalled it. So, uh, you know, as, as, as bogus as, as the story is, it, it tells us the kinds of um, kind of law that would develop around such a distinctive building. But the building is no longer that distinctive because you have this, you know, hulking great imitation of it just across the Bosphorus, And um, of course, it's nowhere near as well done, and I, it's not in as touristic a part of the city. So. Um, I, I don't think Sultan Ahmed mosque will be knocked off its uh, you know pedestal just yet but anyway.
1: At this point in the conversation I told Unver how much I dislike Sultan Ahmed mosque, which is one of the most popular tourist attractions in the city of Istanbul. He's about to gently correct me and give me a greater appreciation for it.
2: I have a soft spot, Fred. I actually wrote um, in the course of my research, my dissertation I discovered, I shouldn't even say discovered because I just did a, a a search in the digital catalog um of this of the Sulaimaniah Library. It just popped, one of the first things that popped up. But I found a digitized photocopy of uh, what turned out to be an unknown manuscript recording. It was a narrative description of a ceremony that was held to um, held upon the completion of the mosque's dome, and this was a ceremony that had in. A, uh, Earlier, scholarship being conflated with the inauguration of the mosque when in fact it was a separate ceremony that happened a, a, a month or so before the inauguration and it shed a lot of light on what was actually in its time a rather controversial building because um sultan Ahmed had not so as a for a sultan to build such a mosque, it was generally expected that that sultan um be a ghazi so be a you know victor in in so-called holy war. Um, generally, that meant conquering non-Muslim territories and filling the state coffers with um, you know, money from that conquest. And he hadn't done that. He hadn't really won Had He didn't really have any significant military victories to his name. So he went ahead and built this mosque regardless and uh, courted controversy as a result with his cleric saying, you know, you really shouldn't be building this. You should be concentrating on conquest and holy war, et cetera. Um, And this manuscript sort of shed a lot of light on the the strategies, the kind of PR strategies that the Sultan and his people used to try and sell this project to the people. And and ceremony was one way of doing this. So there was like an aggressive PR campaign to kind of sell this building in terms of all these ceremonies that were held to kind of announce its building and its completion. So um, it's a really, it's a very risky monument in that it should never have been built. And in fact, one of the criticisms raised was that, well, we've got the Ayasofya Sophia there. We don't need a great big mosque opposite the Ayasofya. Sophia. Not enough people live in the area to justify it. So this, this was stuff that was being said even as the mosque was being planned and built. And yet somehow uh, Ahmed succeeded and built a, a building which is now you know, one of the fan favourites. And you can't really imagine Istanbul without Sultan Ahmed Mosque. So I have a soft spot, soft spot for it because it shows what, can, what you can achieve by just pushing ahead regardless, ignoring all the advice and all the warnings and just saying, no, nope, I'm going to do what I want to do. And um, yeah, he, he, he got his way and, and his mosque. I, I know the carpets smell. They smell very quite badly of feet. But nevertheless, you know, it's, it's the mosque that foreigners go to see, that tourists go to see.
1: So whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim, whether you're a Turk or not a Turk, whether you're visiting Istanbul for the first time or you live there or you have visited many times, we're going to talk right now a bit about our favorite mosques and how to visit them and sort of maybe how to have a bit of a mosque crawl.
2: Yeah, no, I, uh, to, to those who haven't, you don't even have to be that initiated. You just have to kind of look, yeah. uh, you know, turn your eyes on and look quite closely. But many people sort of just say that all the mosques end up looking the same to them. But, um, you know, to, to return to what you were saying earlier, you know, each one is distinctive. And even if it's just the number of minarets it has or the particular configuration of domes, this is something that a lay person can pick up on and um uh you kind of then recreate the experience of uh, of uh, looking at these things with a historical eye because of course you know when these were built people had a much better sense of the kinds of building codes that were at play and what determined you know the the kind of appropriate size of a mosque built by a sultan versus that built by a queen mother versus that built by a vizier etc um but um yeah no i i, I definitely agree with you that Suleymaniye is a a nicer visiting experience the setting uh, is a little bit more removed it's a bit more peaceful um you've, you've got that sort of hilltop um, landscape and view as well so yeah it's definitely a, a calmer and overall better experience and you know just sort of speaking in terms of architectural quality the sulaimania is a finer building if one is going to kind of get connoisseur connoisseurial about it and start um you know, judging things which you're not really supposed to be doing as scholars, but anyway, the Sudey Mania is is architecturally speaking, I, I would say, better monument, quote unquote, better than um or than the Sultan Ahmed, arguably, anyway, it's sort of got uh, certain details that really kind of lift it. And, and
1: what I like about that part of the city is you can do a really good crawl and just. It, just look at, you know, three or four different mosques that are very, very distinct. So Yavu Sultan Salim is, I think, the first mosque I visited when I came last year for the first time in several years. Yeah, it was the night of Nis Shaban, um, I guess. Is it Shaban, did in Turkish? I can't remember. Or Bira'at Kandide? Yeah, that's what it is in Turkish. Um, and uh, there was a, a local Syrian group of ulama were having an event so i went and it it's just the dome is extraordinary and that when it's just so well lit at night um so you go there you, from there and you could walk to Fatih Jami, which i have now a greater appreciation due to your book um the sense of sort of how it was renovated and i can sort of see how it's it these little architectural flourishes which is very clearly just, dis- I mean, now that I can see it, it's very clearly an 18th century mosque. And then you could go, I mean, you could go to Shehzada Jami, but then what I think one should do instead is to go to uh Kalindir Hane Jami. You walk in and you immediately know it's not meant to be a mosque because of the orientation. Um, and then you could, I think it's just, I mean, and also there's another Jami quite close there whose name I'm forgetting, which is very, it's, it's another Byzantine church converted into a mosque. It's down, it's, where is it exactly? It's near the old Shahzadeh Tekke. Um, anyway, and then you can go to Sleimonia and then you can sort of I don't know do whatever else you want that day. But, um, yeah, it's just a very rich part of the city. Uh, I find if you if you wanted to see these very distinct styles and different additions to the buildings and what different mosque mosque complexes look like. So that's my, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um. This is a particularly nasty question to ask, but what is your favorite mosque in the city of Istanbul?
2: That's like asking if I have a favorite song or a favorite film or, you know, favorite food. It really depends on my mood. Um, and I have to give you multiple answers if that's okay. So the Nur Osmani obviously is is a favorite. Um, and I'm very lucky that I can say that after having written a book that centers on this, because, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, in, it's not um, unheard of for someone to sort of turn against their material once they've, they've spent a long time working on it. But no, I still love it, despite having worked on it so extensively. Um, that's one answer. The Suleimaniyeh is a very typical answer, but, you know, it, it just is an extraordinary monument in such a, gl- a wonderful setting. And, and the way that Sinan kind of works with that topography is just stunning. So that's another one. And then um, the Sokol Mehmet Pasha Mosque, is one of my very favourites. It's, it's of course a very well-known mosque, but it's not one that many tourists go to. It's a little bit off the beaten track and it's only a five minute walk away from the Sultanahmet Mosque, so it's, it's hardly far, but you have to sort of go down, down uh, sort of uh, downhill into a residential area. Uh, the custodian who's there is this grumpy old man who really hates anyone going in and tries to stop you going in. But once you're in, it's glorious. You have some of the finest tiles you'll ever see in Ottoman architecture. And it's it's um you know the Rustem Pasha Mosque is is more famous as is, as a tiled mosque as a smallish tiled mosque, but I think the Sofoulmenhet Pasha is is a more interesting out of the way sort of monument. So, um yeah, I would say those three perhaps.
1: If our listeners have at all been intrigued by our rant about mosques in Istanbul's, what do you recommend they read to find out more? Besides your book, obviously.
2: Um no, in terms of other books that deal with mosques, um. There is uh, Kishwar Rizvi's book, The Transnational Mosque, which came out a few years ago and um, looks at at contemporary and modern mosque architecture and um, is well worth a read. It uh, it has some fascinating examples that span the the Islamic world today. Um, So that's for those interested in modern uh, and contemporary mosque architecture. There's also actually um, another book that was published in 1997, which was written by Renata Holland and Hassan al Khan called The Contemporary Mosque. And that also is, is a very good book for those interested in, in, in things modern. Um, as for if you're interested in sort of older mosque architecture, um, there's a recent publication. Uh, I forget its name. Let me just, it's called Mosque's Splendors of Islam. And it's edited by Leila and this is, I mean, as you can probably guess from the title, this is um, kind of designed as a coffee table book. It's, it's very beautifully illustrated. Um, so it, it's not necessarily geared at an academic audience, which may or may not be a good thing, depending on um, what you're looking for. The essays within the book are written by distinguished scholars. So, you know, they, they provide a lot of interesting and relevant information on these monuments. And it's split up by readers. So there's a chapter on Ottoman mosques and a chapter on uh, the mosques of India, that sort of thing. Um, so, that that's provides a, a helpful overview in a kind of coffee table, beautifully illustrated coffee table format. Um, and then, for those wanting more scholarly overviews, there's uh, the recent um, Wiley Blackwell companion to the that Zarukh that's come out recently and is edited by Guluru and Edgypul and uh, Finbar Flood that has tons of chapters that um, touch on mosque architecture throughout the Islamic world, and that will provide people with relevant bibliographies if they want to explore things in further detail. And I should say quickly, sorry, for those interested in learning about, um, learning more about Ottoman mosque architecture, for the earlier period especially, uh, you can't go wrong with um, um uh Sinan book, which is, I mean, it's, it, it's not just about Sinan. It's a really, really masterful study of Ottoman architectural culture, um, up to and including the 16th century and beyond actually. So, so much of what the book says can be applied to the 17th century. And, and she touches on my period as well uh, in, a, in her epilogue. And that is just a masterful study of kind of the the codes, uh, the, the codes of decorum that um, determined uh, the way that different Ottoman mosques look in relation to one another. So how a Sultan's mosque relates to a princess's mask, relates to a vizier's mosque, etc., etc.
1: I want to thank the listeners for coming along with us on this journey and congratulate Unver on this massive achievement. Ottoman Baroque is a stunning book physically, and it's an amazing work of scholarship. So pick one up if you can, or go check it out at your local library. And as is typical with our interview, I am going to close with the question of what Unver is working on now.
2: So um, I'm currently working on a project which is tentatively entitled Turkish Habits. Um, and I'm using habits there in its uh, double sense, a historical meaning of the word which we preserve in relation to uh, clerical garb is is costume, right? So, and the word costume is actually um, etymologically related to custom. So there's it, it, sort of this notion that what one wears reflects one's uh, place in life, one's sort of, broader uh, habits, so it's it's a project that looks at the use of um, the role of costume in Ottoman self-representation, principally in relation to um, uh, interactions with Western Europe. So uh, my materials include costume albums, they include museums of costume in the 19th century that were um, designed or produced by Ottoman artists and producers. Um, and principally geared at Western audiences. So how what, how, and why is it that costume became such an important site of cross-cultural interaction and self-representation? Because one of the things that you encounter again and again in Western responses to the Ottoman Empire is a fascination with the costume and this notion that the Ottomans had a, a, a uniquely um, well-developed sort of sartorial hierarchy and that they... Um, use costume in particularly sort of targeted and um, meaningful ways. So I'm trying to get to the, 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 um, the, the kind of reasons for this characterization. And um, so it's, a, you know, I'm moving very much away from mosques and architecture. It's still a project that, that bears on cross-cultural, uh, questions of cross-cultural interaction. Um, but yeah, it's a very different kind of project for me.